swing, better, 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 swing. Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. Today is Saturday, July 31st, 2021. We are featuring another true crime segment for episode 17, and our subject is a Chicago area criminal whose name was... Silas Jane, J-A-Y-N-E. Sometime during my childhood, a local newspaper ran a story on Silas Jane. The cover art was a painting of a scary-looking man with a kind of squared-off skull and wavy gray hair. He stared out at the viewer with dead, steely gray eyes and a sinister smirk. With a farmscape as his backdrop, the corpses of dead and bloody geese lay behind the man. That image haunted me then, and it still comes to mind now. So let's talk about this man that people around him knew as Psy. Now, Today, I'm going to go off of things that I've read, either articles, newspaper articles, magazine articles, and excerpts from a book on Silas Jane. So he's probably universally kind of known as a bad guy, and we'll see why in a second. When the body of Silas Jane was brought out of the hospital... The people who were the most surprised at how he died were those who had been investigating and watching him for years. Silas Jane had fooled all of them by dying peacefully in his sleep. Given the life he led and the things he was convicted of and suspected of doing, a far more violent ending seemed in the cards. And these are the opening words of Brian Alaspa's book, Silas Jane, Chicago's Suburban Gangster. And that book came out in 2010. Silas Jane was born in 1907, the eldest of 14 children of a Barrington, Illinois farming family a family that traces its legacy back to colonial America. His father was also a truck driver with ties to Prohibition-era bootleggers. Sai's brother George, 16 years his junior, was the baby of the family and had a different father, but he was also known as George Jane. You will soon find that George figures prominently in the story of his elder brother, Silas Jane. The first sign or evidence that Sy was a psychopath occurred, according to family legend, when he was only eight years old. Bitten by a goose on the family farm, the boy exacted revenge by killing the entire flock. At 17 years of age, his crimes turned more serious. In 1924, Silas was convicted of rape. His stepfather, brother George's father, represented him in court and was upset at the easiness of the sentence. He had recommended a minimum sentence of four years. He's a wild young man. A year in jail won't hurt him. Silas and his two other brothers, Frank and DeForest, were rough and tough guys. They were called, by those who knew them, the Jesse Jane Gang. Silas opened his first horse-riding stable, Idle Hour Stable, In 1932, he was 25 years old. Idle Hour Stable was located at Lincoln and Peterson Avenues in Chicago. 
1932 was the same year that Kenneth Hansen was born. Hansen would one day go to work for Silas and commit some gruesome crimes on behalf of Mr. Jane, including an arrangement to murder Silas's brother George. However, that would not be the worst of Hansen's crimes. More on that to follow. The Jane brothers opened several more horse stables over the, over the next 20 years, spreading out their enterprise into the northern suburbs. In fact, in the 1930s, suburban Chicago was home to ranches and, and sprawling farms, and you see a little bit of that remaining today. It was not yet the residential sprawl that we know today. At one Jane family-owned horse farm in Pontiac, Illinois, the three brothers, DeForest, Frank, and Silas, would ship train loads of wild Mustangs out from the west to a, a train depot in Woodstock, Illinois, and from there, drive the horses to their Pontiac farm. The best horses were broken and used in their riding stable, but most of those poor horses ended up, well, more on that as well in a second. <clears throat> DeForest Jane killed himself in 1938, despondent over his fiance's apparent suicide. She had ingested a failed dose of arsenic, in small doses, arsenic was considered a stimulant, so it is uncertain whether she um, self-inflicted her death accidentally or deliberately. In any case, DeForest pulled a Romeo. At one of size stable, this one in River Grove, 10 horses died in a mysterious 1940 fire. Sai was involved with some dangerous and shady people, and many of them would say the same about him. During World War II, Silas and his mobster employees were involved in the horse meat scandals. Beef cattle was in short supply and enorm enormously expensive. Silas sold horse meat, yes, horse meat, to restaurants that were supposed to have been beef. He also arranged for the rustling of cattle from farmers in the rich agricultural land north and west of Chicago. Sai gained a reputation as a hard-bargaining, ruthless horse trader who typically took advantage of wealthy Chicago parents whose daughters wanted to learn to ride. Silas understood that people who own hunter and jumper horses were normally pretty wealthy or that they spent their money as if they were. Competitive horse racing and jumping did not come cheaply. And when you have wealthy people, you're also going to have some miserable scallywag types who are going to be out there trying to take advantage of them. Guys, like and including Silas Jane, came swooping in like vultures on the rich set, trying to get into the pockets of the parents and into the pants of the daughters, and sometimes also the sons. can get a pretty good taste of high society life in the wealthier side of the tracks through the horse games industry. To get into and to fit into the, the hunter-jumper horse riding set, you needed a horse that could do some winning or at least be competitive. If you were a rookie to this subculture, people like Silas Jane wanted to take advantage of you by
by selling you an overpriced horse, charging you overpriced training fees, and selling you the highest priced saddles, bridles, etc. Uh, equipment that's called tack in the industry that was often stolen from some other wealthy horse owner. In the case of Silas Jane, he had a large part in this horse show circuit. He cornered the market in Chicago in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He loved it when the horses from his stables won. And he was angry if they didn't, and he would do things about it. Bad things. Really bad things. According to the Alaspa book, and I quote, Like all good con men, Silas figured out a new angle. Unlike grifters who prey on a victim's greed, Silas's scam appealed to the paternal instincts of the wealthy men who frequented his stable. Into this world of greed and deceit, many an unwitting parent entrusted his or her daughter. Silas often sold wealthy patrons broken down, ready-for-the-glue-factory nags at inflated prices. The con was not a one-shot opportunity, but an ongoing process. After a few weeks or months, Silas would tell a girl's parents that their daughter had a genuine talent but was being held back because she needed a better horse. In short order, many parents purchased a second, more expensive horse. On top of all of his other traits, killer, con man, sadist, Silas was also a pederast. I think I said that right. It wasn't something Silas hid from people in the horse business. He often bragged about such assaults as funning with them. Silas had little fear that his shady horse scheme would be reported to authorities. He treated patrons that threatened to go to the police over a deal in one of two ways. One wealthy factory owner who threatened to file a lawsuit against Silas after buying sickly horses from him received a series of anonymous phone calls. When the phone calls failed to deter a lawsuit, a bomb was detonated outside the man's home. The lawsuit was quickly dropped. Silas's other method of dissuading unhappy customers with daughters was to threaten to ruin a young girl's reputation by spreading rumors that he and a few of his stable hands had had sex with the girl. Faced with these choices, no one was willing to complain to the police about Silas. This was the type of man some of Chicago's leading families trusted their daughters to spend hours with. Close quote. Continuing on with a kind of timeline, um, in 1947, Silas murdered a Chicago mobster who dared to come to one of his stables in Hickory Hills seeking to collect a street tax for the mob. Silas buried the body at his stable. Youngest brother George had opened his own riding stable and was cutting into size action. In 1952, while he and his family vacationed in Florida, a devastating fire swept through George's home in Morton Grove, Illinois. Although the cause was never determined and no one was ever charged in connection with the blaze, George suspected his older brother of starting the fire. 
After all, Sai had learned a few years earlier that fires tend to solve messy problems as a result of his own 1940s loss to arson. George grew up, <clears throat> this is hard to say, he grew up somewhat more polished than Sai, if one could say that about a person capable of removing his shoes and socks during cocktail parties at the homes of wealthy horsemen and proceed to pare his toenails. While Sai was even cruder, he was also the more popular of the brothers. The Chicago horse set was much amused by his antics, and as long as they weren't the ones getting stung, people treated him with tolerance. Standing around the show gate, Sai would make bets, play the clown, and enjoy recounting how he had skinned someone in a deal. Isn't Sai a card? Was their typical reaction, but horsemen aware of Sai's darker side knew that that card came with sharp edges. When so moved, Sai would demand a 10% cut of any show deal in Chicagoland, and few were inclined to cross him. Once when Sai was losing at a horse show, he got a hold of the rider who was winning, and he and another brother, Frank, held him while George then still in his teens, beat this man until he could no longer compete. Silas's name came up in, in connection with the disappearance of three boys near one of his riding stables. In 1999, Kenneth Hansen was convicted of killing those children one witness in his trial said Hansen told him Jane helped load the boys' bodies into a car trunk after they had died in Jane's tack room. This heinous crime occurred on October 16th, 1955. Kenneth Hansen worked for Silas at the time as a general stable hand. So he was doing things like cleaning stalls, grooming horses, doing repairs around the farm. The three young boys, Bobby Peterson, 13, and two brothers, John Schussler, also 13, and his younger brother, Anton, 11 years old, joined up and headed downtown to downtown Chicago in the mid-afternoon to take in a movie. Somehow, they met up with Kenneth Hansen, and they extended their plans somewhat. After the movie, they were going out to a stable owned by Silas Jane to ride horses. They said goodbye to a friend they'd had met up with at a downtown bowling alley, and told him about the writing adventure they were off to. Several people reported seeing the boys hitchhiking north in the early evening. Kenneth Hansen met them at an agreed-upon spot and took them to Idle Hour Stable. But they didn't get to ride horses. Hansen sexually abused each of them. And unlike his usual modus operandi of just forcing sex on hundreds of boys, he murdered these three. In the process, there was a great deal of screaming in the workroom where Hansen had attacked the children. Silas Jane heard the ruckus and came upon the scene. Of course, he was furious, but his Biggest concern was what the crime and the ensuing publicity would do to his business. He helped load the bodies into Hansen's car and gave Hansen instructions about where to dispose of the bodies. 
The brutalized remains of these three boys were found two days later in a nearby forest preserve. The murder investigation held the city spellbound and sent it into a panic for days. Days that stretched into weeks and then months. It would be nearly 40 years before an arrest was made in the case, and only then because clues turned up during the investigation of the disappearance and murder of candy heiress Helen Brock. More about Helen Brock in a moment. In 1961, Cy Jane told police that three well-known Chicago thugs had broken into a home on his farm and threatened the wife of one of the stable hands. Jane said he had scared the men off by firing at them with a 38 revolver. During the ensuing manhunt, a Wisconsin police officer was killed in a shootout with the accused men. While being questioned after their arrest, the men denied ever being at Jane's ranch. When police checked out their alibi, it turned out they were telling the truth. Silas knew and didn't like those guys, retired sheriff's detective Jerry Harmon told the Chicago Tribune years later. He came up with their names, saying they had harassed him. I think he may have tried to frame them. The three men were convicted of murdering the cop and sentenced to prison terms. One guy escaped and vanished. The other two were later paroled. The feud between Silas and George deepened in the ensuing years when writers connected to George's barn bested Silas in several of the area's top horse shows. After the posh Lake Forest horse show, Silas was overheard threatening to kill George. In this regard, Sy was apparently a man of his word. A few months after the show, George's spidey sense tipped him that something was amiss and he left his stable, the stable office, in a borrowed car. Shortly thereafter, an unknown sniper fired nearly 30 rounds into the office that George had just left. Over the next few months, Cars tried to run George off the road, and once someone left a few sticks of dynamite outside his back door. Shotzi, a $25,000 mare that was the marquee horse in George's tricolor riding stable, was injected with turpentine and died while at a horse show in 1964. The next innocent victim of Silas Jane's rage was claimed a year later when Sherry Rude, a 22-year-old champion rider, was killed by a bomb apparently meant for George. Sherry had just stopped by the barn and, oh my gosh, as a favor to George, agreed to move George's car. The moment she turned the key, the vehicle exploded. While following leads into the bombing, a cop posing as a hitman agreed agreed to and arranged a meeting with Silas Jane and received a $1,000 down payment to kill George. An indictment for conspiracy soon followed. The state's case collapsed when its star witness, who was present when the cop received the payment, 
recanted his allegations that he had been paid $15,000 to plant three sticks of dynamite meant for George that ended up killing Sherry. Suffering from the convenient case of amnesia, this witness said he knew nothing about any $15,000 payments. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning, he said. The $1,000 from Sai? Well, that was for a horse, he said. It would take more than 30 years to finally bring Sherry Rude's killer to justice. And the killer was a stable hand for Silas Jane, who was deceased by the time the case was solved. Back into the 60s, later in 1966, three women who some authority said witnessed the planting of the dynamite disappeared after getting into a blue and white motorboat similar to the one owned by one of Silas's ranch hands. Later, Silas reportedly bragged to a Nevada sheriff that three bodies were buried beneath his house. George was obviously not completely innocent in the feud with his brother. He had previously told authorities that he feared for his life as long as Silas was loose and he subsequently hired private investigators to tail his older brother. In 1969, one of those investigators, trying to determine why a bug placed on Silas's Cadillac had stopped working, was killed in a shootout with Silas. According to Silas, he heard someone on his property, and when he called out, Silas was almost shot. Returning fire, he managed to hit the P.I. and then proceeded to empty eight shots from an M1 rifle into the wounded man. With no other witnesses, police had to accept Jane's story and the death was ruled, the death was ruled justifiable. One year later, after celebrating his son's 16th birthday, George was shot to death in the den of his own home. Authorities managed to find a witness who saw a partial plate on a getaway car, on a getaway car. Silas, the obvious prime suspect, refused to take a lie detector test and claimed he and George had made up years before. Still, he did not attend his brother's funeral, blaming that on the fact that he was not mentioned in the obituary. That partial license plate led police to a 37-year-old dishwasher who was arrested while carrying $10,000 in cash. On 17 of the bills, investigators found Silas Jane's fingerprints. The dishwasher later told police who fired the shots. Those two men cooperated with police in, retur in return for immunity and pointed their fingers at Silas Jane. Jane hired F. Lee Bailey to defend him against the murder charges. After a high-profile trial in the spring of 1973, Silas Jane was found guilty and convicted, but only of conspiracy to commit the murder of his brother, and was sentenced to 6 to 20 years in prison. While Bailey hailed the fact that Jane beat the murder rap, one juror told the press that Jane's cold eyes had intimidated some of the jurors and prevented them from agreeing to the first-degree murder charge the others had wanted. Sai continued to give orders to his gangster employees while imprisoned. In April of 1976, 
a fire destroyed a horse stable in Anawanamak, or no, Aconomawak, Aconomawak, Wisconsin. The arsonist, who had been a cellmate of Silas Jane, was captured and claimed that Silas paid him $30,000 to torch the place where 33 horses perished. While Silas sat in prison, a jury awarded George Jane's widow $1 million in a wrongful death suit against Cy. Six years after entering prison in connection with the brother, the <laughs> six years after entering prison in connection with the murder of his brother, Silas was released. He offered George's widow $250,000. She refused. In 1980, Silas was tried for the aforementioned Wisconsin stable fire and was acquitted. And the year before, in 1979, he was paroled. During the time Silas was jailed, Helen Brock, heiress to the Brock Candy Fortune, vanished after leaving the Mayo Clinic. Her disappearance is linked to a massive horse set fraud ring, and Richard Bailey, an acquaintance of Silas, is serving a life sentence in connection to that case. Even though Silas was in prison when she disappeared, he was still intimately connected to the horse trading business. Helen Brock was the wealthy widow and the heiress to an extensive fortune. She had gotten taken badly for a few hundred thousand dollars by Silas, and he'd made a fool of her. She didn't take this swindle sitting down. Mrs. Brock made a lot of noise about going to the Illinois state's attorney with her story about organized crime in the horse industry. She ended up missing and has never been found. There's a pretty reliable story that she was killed by the mob and cremated by them in the Gary, Indiana steel mill furnaces. Helen Brock, like so many others, fell for the signature Silas Jane scam that her children were talented riders and needed better horses. But unlike all those others, she did not cower to him. And also, unlike many of the others, Helen Brock paid for her troubles with her life. And Silas Jane died quietly of leukemia in 1987. It may seem remarkable that Silas Jane could just keep on committing these very serious crimes over decades and not get his ass hauled off to prison. But the fact is, is that he had very strong connections, not only in the Chicago mob, but he had very good friends in the city and county police departments. He paid very good money for these friends. This enabled him to get away with hiring hitmen to murder his own brother and possibly another to kill Helen Brock. Now, we're going to hear a little switcheroo in this story. So, according to some people who actually knew Silas Jane and the other Janes, they believe that all of the stories I just told are a bunch of Bull hunky. According to some folk in the know, there is a tender side to Silas that the public just doesn't know. (coughs) 
I'm going to quote some of them right now. One of them had this to say. I knew them all. George, Silas, George's stuck-up daughter, Linda. My horse got crippled at George's, well, in her stall, meaning Linda's stall. Silas cleaned my boots and never made a dime. George would order, order tack and blankets, and if you didn't want the tack, he'd retort, What's your problem? Can't afford it? George was a, a smart con man and cheated Silas over and over. George had the advantage of an immoral old attorney for a father and to give George some gloss and bad advice, but never ethics or loyalty. George came back on leave to marry the girl he impregnated when she was 16. So they were both statutory rapists. Cy was 17 at the time, George 20. You figure it out. George's father got Cy imprisoned and out of his way while George got married to a pregnant 17-year-old girl. Life was really fair with the mother and the conniving married attorney she took up with. A woman with 11 children might try taking care of them instead of having an affair. Cy was helping to support the family when his mother saw an old man with deep pockets and took a job with benefits. Every time Cy trusted his mother, her lover, or George, he was betrayed. He bankrolled George, and George paid him off with the commissions he stole from selling Frank and Cy's horses. George knew the car was a potential hazard when he had Sherry get into it. George was blackmailing Cy with Hanson's crimes. It is hard to keep trying with a brother whose advent caused problem after problem, and the idiot would never let Cy alone. He goes on. George kept being helped by the immoral, illeg illegitimate father and his we-can't-do-no-wrong wife. She couldn't see the bad in George or the good in Cy. George never helped his sisters. Cy made sure they were all fed and housed. George bought airplanes for his wife. Cy bought houses for his family. I rode at George's. Horses died or disappeared there regularly. I remember watching George uh, train jumpers. He would throw a ski pole from 20 feet in their rump if it looked like they'd refuse a jump. This was in the 60s. Cy wasn't bugging George's car or sending intruders to George's home after the family truce. George never knew when to lay off. Close quote. And another person had this to say, How dare you defame Silas Jane? I do not believe you ever met him. I was a child and from eight years old until I became 18 years old, he treated me with respect and taught me horsemanship. He was kind to me. There was never anything wrong, and he never murdered anyone. You can find a lot of erroneous information about Silas on the internet if you search long enough. I lived this era. Close quote. And I, Mars Messina, actually have my own connection to Silas Jane. So back in the day, my grandmother used to take my dad and Uncle Bill to the stables to ride. Yes, those stables. The stables belonging to Silas Jane. So my grandmother knew him. Not well, but he was just the horse stable guy. That's how they knew him. Never had any problem with him. 
So I think, I mean, I wasn't around, but I think she was probably surprised to see him in the news. Like, whoa, I know that guy. But anyway, I thought it was really interesting that my dad and my uncle and my grandmother knew this dude. Uh, these family members are now gone, so I can't ask them any further about Silas Jane, unfortunately. But in any case, it is now time for Bedtime Stories from the Acoustic Bookshelf. I am going to read an excerpt from The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. It was the very witching time of night that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, pursued his travels homewards along the sides of the lofty hills which rise above Terrytown, in which he had traversed so cheerily in the afternoon. The hour was as dismal as himself. Far below the toppened sea spread its dusky and distinct waste of waters, with here and there the tall mast of a sloop, riding quietly at anchor under the land. In the dead hush of midnight, he could even hear the barking of the watchdog from the opposite shore of the Hudson. But it was so vague and faint as only to give an idea of his distance from this faithful companion of man. Now and then, too, the long-drawn crowing of a cock, accidentally awakened, would sound far, far off from some farmhouse away among the hills. But it was like a dreaming sound in his ear. No signs of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket or perhaps the guttural twang of a bullfrog from a neighboring marsh, as if sleeping uncomfortably and turning suddenly in his bed. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper into the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had laid. In the center of the road stood an enormous tulip tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees of the neighborhood and formed a kind of landmark. Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic large enough to form trunks of ordinary trees, twisting down almost to the earth and rising again into the air. As Ichabod approached this fearful tree, he began to whistle. He thought his whistle was answered. It was but a blast sweeping sharply through the dry branches. As he approached a little nearer, he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the tree. He paused and ceased whistling, but on looking more narrowly, perceived that it was a place where the tree had been scathed by lightning and the white wood lay bare. Suddenly he heard a groan. His teeth chattered and his knees smote against the saddle. But it was the rubbing of one huge bough upon another as they were swayed about by the breeze. He passed the tree in safety, but new perils lay before him. About 200 yards from the tree, a small brook crossed the road and ran into a marshy and thickly wooded glen 
known by the name of Wiley Swamp. A few rough logs laid side by side served as the bridge over this stream. On that side of the road where the brook entered the wood, a group of oaks and chestnuts matted with thick, wild grapevines threw a cavernous gloom over it. This has been, ever since been considered, a haunted stream, and fearful are the feelings of the schoolboy who has to pass it alone after dark. As he approached the stream, his heart began to thump. He summoned up, summoned up, however, all his resolution, gave his horse half a score of kicks in the ribs, and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge. But instead of starting forward, the perverse old animal made a lateral movement and ran broadside against the fence. Ichabod, whose fears increased with the delay, jerked the reins on the other side and kicked lustily with the contrary foot. It was all in vain. His steed started, it is true, but it was only to plunge to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles and alder bushes. The schoolmaster now bestowed both whip and heel upon the starveling ribs of old gunpowder, who dashed forward, snuffling and snorting, but came to a stand just by the bridge with a suddenness that had nearly sent his rider sprawling over his head. Just at this moment, a plashy tramp by the side of the bridge caught the sensitive ear of Ichabod. In the dark shadow of the grove, on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge, misshapen, and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveler. The hair of the affrighted pedagogue rose upon his head with terror. What was to be done? To turn and fly was now too late. And besides, what chance was there of escaping ghost or goblin if such it was which, would, which could ride upon the wings of the wind. Summoning up, therefore, a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, Who are you? He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Still, there was no answer. Once more, he cudgeled the sides of the inflexible gunpowder and, shutting his eyes, broke forth with involuntary fervor into a psalm tune. Just then, the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion and with a scramble and a bound stood at once in the middle of the road. Though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might now in some degree be ascertained. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He made no offer of molestation or sociability, but kept aloof on one side of the road jogging along on the blind side of old gunpowder who had now got over his fright and waywardness. Ichabod, who had no relish for this strange midnight companion and bethought himself of the adventure of Brombones with the galloping Hessian, now quickened his steed in hopes of leaving him behind. The stranger, however, quickened his horse to an equal pace. Ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind. The other did the same. His heart began to sink within him. 
he endeavored to resume his psalm tune, but his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a stave. There was something in the moody and dogged silence of this pertinacious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for. On mounting a rising ground, which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless. But his horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which should have rested upon his shoulders, was carried before him on the pommel of his saddle. His terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping by a sudden movement to give his companion the slip. But the specter started full jump with him. Away then they dashed through thick and thin, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lanky body away from the horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. Until next week, buena noche.